And uh, you can take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some ushers up at the front right here. And uh, slip your hand up in the air if you don't have a Bible. We want to make sure that a Bible gets your way. And we want to encourage you, if you don't own a Bible, um, this is our gift to you today. Take this home with you. Um, we, we trust that you will read it and be encouraged by it, be blessed by the, the living and active Word of God. And we're making it really easy on you um, this year. We're, we're making it easy to navigate um, where we're going in the Bible. You just turn to the very first book. That's it. It's that simple. Genesis chapter 1. We're still there. And... Uh, I want to begin um, by telling you a little bit about where we're going, and I'm going to read the text real quick for us, but it says this, uh, in Genesis 1, we're going to look at verse 26 through 28. See, at the very beginning of the Bible, here's what you need to understand, we're given the foundations for all of life. We're given the foundations for all uh, existence. And we saw this the very first week we studied Genesis. We saw that really we were looking at the divine origins, that, that everything finds its foundation in God and his creative power, his ability to speak the universe into existence out of nothing. And then last week we looked at the divine order or organization of the cosmos, that God has formed it and he has filled it. He has made it habitable and productive. He has designed this world to be beneficial for life, for human flourishing. And he has created it as a place not only where human beings will dwell, but a place where he will dwell with them. And here I want to look specifically at divine image. This is incredibly foundational in the Bible how human beings reflect and represent the God of the universe. Look at verse 26 with me. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We have here the first poem in the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. We're going to focus mainly on this idea of divine image, and next week we're going, to, we're going to focus on divine design. We're going to look specifically next week on what it means to be male and female. I think it's appropriate in our cultural moment and context to slow down and to consider what the Bible says about a gender and sexuality. So we're going to have a whole sermon on that next week, so don't be anticipating much to be said on that this week, Okay. But it's so important, I think equally important as the gender and sexuality discussion is the discussion on identity, how humanity understands and, and views themselves, especially in relation to God. You see, how we understand ourselves dictates how we behave. It may be a slight overstatement, but the Swiss theologian Emil Brunner, he said this, the most powerful of all spiritual forces is man's view of himself. The way in which we understand our nature and our destiny, indeed, it is the one force which determines all the others which influence human life. Moses, when he penned the book of Genesis, he understood the importance of, of self-understanding, of how human beings must understand who they truly are. He understood the significance of the dignity of humanity 
And he saw it as crucial, a crucial foundation for the Christian faith. But we look around at our world and we understand that in many ways, our world rejects this dignity. The rise of atheism has led to the rise of confusion. People are in many ways bipolar in our culture when they think of the value or the significance of humanity. At uh, one moment, they esteem us as mere animals, and at the next moment, they usurp the place of God and want to be ruler and king of the universe. Some want us to believe that we're nothing but a pool of chemicals or a clump of cells. We're told that we reserve the right uh, somehow to define ourselves, that our truth is the only truth that matters. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I took my son to the emergency room at Markham Stillville Hospital. He's okay. He broke his leg. Uh, but it was fascinating to me um, that as we walked in, you know, we went through triage, and then we had to sit down at a, a counter and give some of our, our details to some administrator. And, um, and as we did so, it was fascinating. There's a, you know, plexiglass between us, of course, and, uh, and there was a sign right in front of our, our, our face that said, tell me how you, would, how you identify. The irony that this was a hospital filled with experts in biology was not lost on me. But you see, objective, transcendent truth doesn't seem to matter anymore, at least in this cultural moment, or, or that's what we're, we're being encouraged at least to believe. We're, we're told in our culture, believe in yourself, love yourself, define yourself by how you feel. You are what you feel, you are what you desire. Reject external authority. Reject the idea of transcendent truth. Who cares what the Bible says or in the institutional church? You see, our culture loves self as God, not a God external to self. And this, this ultimately, church, is the essence of sin. This is what the Bible describes as sin. We're going to see this in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But without God, I want you to consider this, man knows neither his or her identity nor his or her rightful place in the world. We're all just kind of meandering about in the dark, trying to figure out how we got here, what this world is all about, and what purpose we serve in this universe. And there's so much confusion in our world. It's a story about a parking attendant who once found the, the pessimistic philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, sitting on a park bench, his hair all disheveled, and the parking attendant comes up to him and asks him who he was. And his reply, I think, is very fitting. He said, I wish to God I knew. And that's the question I want to put before you today in light of our cultural moment. Who do we think we are? And I want you to take that in two ways. One, our culture needs to hear this. Listen, as a rebuke, who do you think you are to define yourself the way you see fit? Who do you think you are to tell the creator who you are instead of being told by the creator who you are? Who, who do we think we are to somehow believe that we are responsible for defining our own identity and for declaring it to the world. Or maybe to ask it another way, who do we think we are? Who do we, who do we think we are? And, and if, we, if we think rightly about who we are, how does that change everything about our life, the way we live, the way we act, the way we speak, you see, when we discover who we are according to God's revealed word, it provides the foundation for a meaningful life. And I want to give you three points this morning in light of this. Who do we think we are first? Well, God defines our identity. 
God defines our our identity. He's the one who created us, and therefore, he determines that identity for us. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you've heard me say this, but what we see in this picture of creation is that God has, he's created this universe as a cosmic temple. And for some of you, you still don't quite understand what I mean by that, and and it will become more clear, especially as we get into chapter 2. I'm going to show you some striking parallels between the tabernacle and uh, the created cosmos, between the role of Adam in the garden and the role of the priests in the temple. I'm going to show you some, some connections that I think you'll find fascinating, but for now, humor me and just understand that what God has done is He has crafted the cosmos as a temple. He has formed it, as we saw last week, and then he has filled it, or or to keep that kind of architectural temple kind of imagery, he has framed the temple, and now he's been furnishing the temple. And here, in this section, on the sixth day, we come to the pinnacle of God's creative work. The pace of the narrative intentionally slows down, and the camera zooms in so we get a close-up The structure of this passage with the poem injected in the middle of it indicates that what God is doing here is special, it's unique, it's unusually important. The creation of humanity stands apart from the rest of God's creative activity. The word created is actually repeated three times here in reference to man and woman. And Francis Schaeffer puts it like this. He says, it is as though God put exclamation points here to indicate that there is something special about the creation of man. So listen, church, make no mistake about it. We are, as human beings, the most important part of God's creation. We have been given, as a result of that, the most important role in creation, and we enjoy, listen, we enjoy or are given the capacity to enjoy the most important relationship in creation. And so unlike the rest of God's creation, God here defines our identity, notice this, in relation to himself. He creates the rest of the the animals and the birds He makes them according to their kinds, according to their species. But humans, notice in this passage, are not made according to their kind. They are created in some way according to God. And this is hugely significant. We hear in this moment a heavenly conversation taking place, consider this, before there are any human ears even created. God says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. God here, he deliberates and he declares his intention to create not animals, but human beings. And it's difficult to figure out what exactly is going on here and Like I said, Genesis 1 is incredibly controversial, and there's a lot of controversy about what exactly is taking place here. What is this shift into the plural pronouns? Let us make man in our image. Who's talking here? Who's a part of this conversation? Some have seen this as a, a, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, a plural of majesty, just describing the kingly nature of God. It's possible, but I think that that view has kind of been pushed aside, and, and most, most people believe that's not exactly what's going on here. I think there are two options here to consider. Either God is deliberating with himself, or God is announcing his intention to his royal court. If it is a divine deliberation, then here's what we see. We're getting a glimpse into the the triune God. So it's as if we're we're kind of getting a little peek behind the curtains and we're being told that this God is, is complex. He's unique. It's possible to see that here. We've already seen a reference to the Spirit of God that's hovering over the face of the waters But I think it's important to acknowledge that Moses, the human author, would not have been thinking about the Trinity when he wrote this. 
we want to approach the Bible, and, and we believe that authorial intent is incredibly important, but it's also, I think the pendulum has swung very far in the direction of the human authorial, authorial intent, oftentimes to the neglect of the, um, the, the, the divine author of Scripture. And so let me just say this. There's a lot of people who look at this and say, you know what the divine author is telling us in light of the New Testament? Right? We know from the New Testament that, that the Spirit was there at the beginning, that the Son of God, the, 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 the pre-incarnate Word of God was present at the beginning, that all things were made um, in Him and through Him and for Him. And, and so some say, listen, the divine author is intending for us to read back into Genesis that this is the triune God. That's a very, very reasonable view. It's quite possible that that's exactly what it is. But there is perhaps, perhaps greater evidence that God is actually declaring his intentions to this divine counsel. That may be a new uh, concept for some of you in here, but it's something that you see throughout the pages of the Old Testament. There is surrounding the throne of God a heavenly courtroom with angelic beings of different kinds. Think of Isaiah who's, who's in the, the throne room of God and he sees the cherubim and the seraphim. Or think of Job chapter 1 and 2 when Job walks into, so to speak, the courtroom of God where God is having this conversation not only with Satan but other angelic beings. In the ancient world, there are many people who believed that the ruling of the world was actually a community effort on the part of the gods. There was this pantheon of gods in, in the ancient world in virtually every religion. Remember, remember, this is somewhat polemical what Moses is doing here. And the gods, or sorry, the religions of the world, they are all polytheistic religions, multiple gods warring with one another, in conflict with one another, constantly fighting. And then in comes Moses and says, actually, there's one God above all gods. There's a superior being who created everything. And it's very possible to see this here as a, a polemic to subvert the idea of this polytheistic a worldview that they were immersed in. So instead, what you have here potentially is that God announces, he declares to the heavenly court his decision to share, think about this, to share rule with humanity. And if this is true, just consider the implications of this. God has declared to the divine assembly that his rule in the world will be affected largely through human beings, not through gods or angels. This is a mind-blowing reality if you understand the spiritual and supernatural world. God is giving priority and precedence to human beings. In fact, um, keep your finger in Genesis 1. I want you to flip to um, Psalm 8, close to the middle of your Bible. Psalm 8 is a psalm of David, and it really is a commentary in one sense, a reflection on this section of the book of Genesis. And there, we'll just read the whole psalm. It's such a beautiful psalm. It's so fascinating. Just listen to what David writes. He says, in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And then here it is, specifically commenting on Genesis 1. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Listen to this. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. See, David's acknowledging the, the high position and place that God has given to humanity in the grand scheme of creation. Humanity is not only the pinnacle of God's creation, but primary in accomplishing God's plan in creation. It's not the angels. 
It's not some supernatural being. It's human beings. But what does it mean here then to be created in God's image and likeness? Again, the debate around this and the controversy around this is, is, is massive. Some people believe that to be created in the image and likeness of God has to do with uh, the human's ability to relate to God. And I think that's, that's for sure true. In other words, out of all of creation, only human beings are given the capacity to know God in an intimate kind of fellowship and relationship that is certainly unique amongst all of creation. Some believe that this implies um, for humanity, the possession of what theologians call uh, God's communicable attributes. That is, those attributes of God that human beings share, but in a finite way. So there are ways that, in other words, we can relate to God, ways that we are actually like God in our consciousness, our awareness, our ability to love, our ability to create to form and to fill as we're going to see. And I think there's actually truth to some of that. But I think there's more going on here than than just those two things. In the ancient world, it's fascinating when you kind of compare the Bible to what they thought in the ancient world. Remember, Moses is seeking to deconstruct the worldviews that are pervasive of the day, and he's seeking to build up and present a much better alternative, a true truth, so to speak, something that provides greater significance and meaning and purpose and value. But in the ancient world, they believed that the image of the God, lowercase g God, possessed, possesses the God's life, Okay? They believed that the king in the ancient world was actually an image of the God. He was like a statue, a living statue of the God. So every king kind of represented at least one God, one main God. And a king in the ancient world would place an image, a statue of himself in uh, the places that he had gone and conquered. So um, if, you, if a king kind of was cause branching out and expanding his territory, military victories, one of the ways he would establish his authority and demonstrate his superiority is that he would, would set up a statue of himself that was a reminder that he was the authority over this place. He had the power. His God was the God that ruled this place. Think of Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar, who, who built that massive gold statue of himself, and he called the people to bow down to it. You see, they associated the worship of the statue, the image, with the worship of the God. It's also interesting that, that royal figures were considered sons that were adopted by the gods to function as a vice regent on behalf of the gods, affecting the gods' purposes in humanity and in society. I want to show you a unique, a unique parallel, a place where Moses chooses to use the same kind of a language. It'll be on the screen behind me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Notice the similarity in language. Remember the context before you read that, okay? Here's, here's the people of God. Uh, they're receiving the, the, the law of God, and here's what, what Moses says to them. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under underneath the earth. Now listen, this is not only an instruction to um, the nation of Israel, this is a rebuke to the nations that surround Israel because this is the exact thing they were doing. And you see, that, that, is, the, that, that is what Satan was trying to infuse in all of the false religions. If, if, if you didn't know this, listen, there's only one true religion, and it's the religion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Every other religion is a false religion. There are not multiple paths that are leading to the top of the mountain, okay? Every path leads you away from God other than Christianity, and every other path, every other religion in the world, listen, is a satanic, demonic system intended to blind the eyes of unbelievers and to keep them buried under the weight of their sin and shame, never able to be redeemed by the power and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every other religion is satanic and demonic. And so what you see here, listen, is this. Listen, here's what you got to remember. Satan is not a creator, okay? Satan is, is 
he wants to be God, but he can't be God. He's a decreator. He can only take what God has created good and holy and righteous and pure and perfect, and he can only twist it and distort it and try to make something that resembles what God did but doesn't do any good for anybody. That's what Satan does. He, he, he devises, in other words, let me give you an illustration. He, he, he's, he devises cheap knockoffs, okay? okay? God gives you the Gucci or the Louis Vuitton, and, and Satan gives you that cheap knockoff that lasts maybe 24 hours. So what Satan has done with all the idolaters of the world, listen, is talk them into building all these temples. Think of the ancient world. Temples are everywhere building all of these temples that represent these little places where their false gods reign over their domain. So they'd build these temples and then they would, they would take a block of wood or a piece of stone or some molten metal and they would shape and mold an image of their God and they would place it in the center of their temple and then they would re revolve around that. They would worship that image as if it was the God itself. But in the real story, you need to hear this. This is awesome. In the real story, the living and true God didn't build a little house. He built the world. And he didn't carve up a piece of wood. He, he built a human being, a living, breathing, worshiping, walking, talking, living representation of himself. And he places that in the midst of his temple, not to be worshiped, but to represent him and reflect him in the world so that all the world might know him and worship him. That's the real story. And so when God creates humanity, in his own image and likeness, he creates a visible representation of his own invisible self. That's what you are. Yes, marred by sin, distorted by sin, but still maintaining by the very nature of who you are, the image and likeness of God. I heard it put like this by one of my professors, Peter Gentry. He, he said this in, in, in relation to the ancient world, and I think what we see in the scriptures is that image refers to kingship, likeness refers to sonship, Okay? So let me give you one, just if you flip in your Bible over to um, chapter 5. Just li listen to the sonship emphasis here, okay? Verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He's going to explain here what he means. Male and female, both male and female are both in the likeness of God. Look at this. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years old, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So you see what God is, is doing here by using this language. He's telling you two things. He's telling you, listen, as a human being, you are royalty, okay? You, you, are, you are intended to be a king and queen over the earth, and you are family, okay? You are intended to be in relationship with God, and when you are, you will rightly reflect him and represent him. It was interesting watching the, the royal funeral not long ago. I don't know how many of you caught that, at least a little portion of it. It was long, wasn't it? It's was like, man, I don't have, who has this much time? <laughs> but, but listen, I, I actually appreciate the pageantry of it all because you know what they're doing as they stretch this out in all of its pomp and circumstance? What they're doing is they're, they're, they're trying to show you the, the significance, the value, the dignity that, that this woman possessed by virtue of who she was as queen of England. And, and it was a way they were honoring her. And, and I couldn't help but think, listen, just, just imagine what they, that's what they did for the queen. That's exactly how God feels about humanity, just all of us. He sees the value, the dignity, the significance. And he says, I have created you like this. You're part of the royal family. If you're in Christ today, you're part of the royal family. And you're like, well, the royal family, that's, 
that's not great. Okay, listen, God doesn't think of you like Harry and Meghan. It's like Kate and Will, okay? That's helpful. We're like, we're like, not to press the illustration too far, we're kind of like Harry and Meghan in our sin. Like, we want nothing to do with the family. We just want to use the family, abuse the family. I don't know, I'm speculating a little bit, but... <laughs> But that's, that's what we do in our sin. We don't want anything to do with the royal dignity that God has given us. We want to define ourselves. See, that's the point. We, we want to determine our own life. We want to live it the way we want. We don't want to live it in accordance with God's good royal decrees. We were created to be in relation with him. We are endowed, think about what this means for us as human beings, we're endowed with incalculable value and unbelievable potential. You, listen, you are made in the image and likeness of God, the king and creator of the universe. Your, your primary source of identity, listen, must be found in him, okay? That's what this is teaching us. It can't be found in what you accumulate. It can't be found in what you accomplish. It can't be found in, you know, where you've succeeded or failed. It cannot be defined by you. It cannot be defined by someone else. It must be defined by God because if it's not, listen, whatever you try to find your identity in, it will not be able to bear the weight you place on it. It will crumble and crack and you'll just be kind of clawing along trying to find something that's going to fill that gap in your life and make you feel better about yourself and you know, just one more thing to add to the list. I'll get busier, I'll do more, I'll, I'll change the way I look. When we know who we are, here's the awesome thing, we can then know what we're supposed to do. Secondly, God designs our activity. And you see, it flows directly out of our identity. I say this all the time, but just hear this again. You need to, you need to embrace this saying, identity drives activity, okay? Identity drives activity. It does in every area of your life. So if, you're, if your primary identity is found in accomplishment, guess what? It's going to drive you to try to accomplish more and more and more. If your identity is found in what people think of you, it's gonna, you're, you're going to wrap yourself around in our culture, you know, social media, and you're going to try and be like the next latest cool person. You want to be on the cutting edge of fashion and trends, and you want to make sure that you put yourself out there so you can get all the, the likes and the approval from everybody you think is going to validate you and give you what you think you need. If your identity is found in external appearance, then you're going to throw your life into exercise and diet and working out and consumed with your image and your self-worth. I mean, I go on and on. I just want you to see whatever it is you try to find your identity in, it will inevitably drive your activity. If it's in success and money and prospering, you will become a workaholic. But here we're told that our identity flows, our activity flows directly out of the identity that God has bestowed upon us. Look at what it says. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And here's the activity. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You hear that word? Dominion. Oh, that's a bad word in our culture today. But this word, scripturally speaking, it's, it's a reigning word. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's infused with royal dignity. It's a ruling word, according to the scriptures. God says, I'm imparting my authority to you, my image bearer. You are made, think about this, to reign over God's world. Now, I want you to see this because you can miss the connection. The, the rule of God's world must be done in relationship with the God over the world, okay? So humanity rules God's word well when we are in relationship with God the way he intended. It's an outworking of that relationship. The vertical relationship with God, and you know this to be true, the vertical relationship you have with God impacts the horizontal behavior in your life, the things you invest yourself in, the time you spend doing things. The closer the vertical relationship, the more you want your life to align with the will of God, the word of God, the way of God. It's just the way it goes. 
This has massive implications for who we are in this world. And I want to contrast this with some of the cultures around the the world. I I spent quite a bit of time um, a number of years ago back in Nepal. And and in Nepal, it's fascinating, right? It's the same in India, but they have a caste system, right? A caste system, you can be one of four castes and... And, you know, the highest caste is, is like the best caste. You get all the opportunities. You're treated. It's like your royalty. It's not in your blood. But if you're not in the, in the highest caste, you know, the further down you go on the rung, the less value and significance and opportunity you have. And if you're at the lowest end of the rung, if you're an untouchable, you're essentially worthless. And the only hope you have is that you're going to die sometime quick and be reincarnated so you have a better chance of being something better. I mean, in, 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 the, in the culture, in this system too, around the world right now, if you're a woman, talk about a lack of dignity and value. If you're a woman and your husband dies, you're required in some places in the world to throw yourself on the funeral pyre and to burn yourself to death in solidarity with your husband. You see, in, in other religions, only some people have value and therefore are useful to God. But in God's system, listen, in God's view, every one of his children are royalty. Everyone has dignity and value. And everyone is essential for his kingdom plan. We are all God's vice regents, which speaks to God's designed intention for humanity to master or to rule all creatures and to rule the earth. And what we see here is often described um, as the creation mandate. We're called to subjugate the world, to take dominion. Now, listen, dominion does not mean that human beings are free to exploit creation in a negative way without regard for the beauty and glory of God's creation. This isn't an excuse to just kind of destroy the world. That's not, that's not honoring to God. This speaks to exercising dominion in a way that mirrors God's actions in Genesis chapter 1. God's actually given us the blueprint. God's power and authority in bringing this world into existence is emphasized in the first chapter of Genesis. And what do we see God doing? He is forming and he is filling. And guess what he calls humanity to do? Go and be like me. See, See this world? Go form it and go fill it. Of course, human beings rule creation under God's authority. Practically, though, this means that it is appropriate for human beings to use creation for their benefit, okay? This is incredibly controversial in our day, in our let's go green world, right? Now, listen, we'll see this in chapter 2. We are called to care for creation. But in the confusion of our times, we see a reversal, think about this, a reversal of the creation mandate. The earth has more value than people, and animals have more dignity than human beings. Full reversal. I mean, every Hollywood movie seems to have some kind of an environmental agenda, doesn't it? And isn't it fascinating? You see how this has infiltrated even our own lives? Isn't it fascinating that when we're watching movies, we shed tears when puppies are killed but not people? I mean, I don't shed tears. You probably do, but. (laughs) Dominion is a a biblical concept, and any view that would deny the unique role of human beings with God's creation and place humans and animals on the same level is to be vehemently rejected. And this is going to be this is going to be controversial for some of you, and it's going to hit close to home. It's going to be more controversial than the, the 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 debate over the days. Certainly over my mustache. I'm going to milk that as long as I can. Your pet, this is going to be hard to hear, your pet is not your fur baby, okay? You are not your pet's skin parent. <laughs> you, you are its owner. You rule it. It doesn't rule you. Some of you are going to have to go home and look in the mirror really hard today. But you see, there's, there's a design that God has built into creation. God defines our identity. He designs our activity. We are supposed to be the visible representation of the invisible God. And as such, we are to make God's presence known in all of creation. That's the goal. That's the objective. We exist to bring to bear on all creation the character of God. 
his holiness, his purity, his mercy, his justice. To make it so that God reigns in all the world. That's what we're for. That's why God created us. God's character, his presence, his reign, and his authority. We exist, listen to this, to make that real in life. Everywhere we are, we are walking representations of what it means to know the God of the universe and to live according to his good and perfect purposes and plan. Whether you're at work, Listen, you are demonstrating the character of God by how you operate in your life, by the kind of character you display in the workplace, by how you think, by how you speak, by how you act in your home, how you shepherd your kids, how you speak to your spouse, what you talk about, what you watch, what you invest your lives into. Every part of your life is supposed to be a representation and reflection of the authority and power of God. You're saying to the world, there is a God who rules. And if you look at my life, you can get a glimpse of the God who rules me. It's our job. And I want you to just consider that God blesses them in this. You know, it's like, well, this is impossible to do on my own. Amen. God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is not an individual pursuit. This is a corporate reality. God's like, listen, I know, I know, Adam, you can't do it alone. Don't worry, I'm going to make you a wife, and the two of you are going to make a whole bunch of other little human beings. And and then here's the implication of this, okay? And in each one of those, you are going to have to train up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You're going to have to train them up to know me and to live for me so that wherever they go, they become walking, living, breathing, loving representations and reflections of me, their God, and their king. Parents, are you doing that with your kids? Are you raising them up to walk in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to be counter-cultural, to stand out in this world, to show this world that there is light in the midst of the darkness? And I just want you to think about the implication of this, okay? I want you to consider this, that the text tells us God created the whole world, and and he looks at the, the end of it, he looks at his creation, and what words does he say? It was what? Very good. But here's what's crazy to think about, okay? We're going to see this when we get to the garden in chapter 2. God places uh, Adam and Eve in a garden that has boundaries. And I want you to just think about this. So here's the garden, but here's the world, okay? And, And what God is saying, in effect, I want you to consider the reality of this. I have created everything very good. Now, here's, here's a question that I often ask people that they've never thought about. The garden of Eden is, is paradise. Amen? What does it look like outside the garden? I don't, I don't know. Not the garden. It's the answer. Not the garden. It's not the garden. Outside of the garden, it, it's it's not quite as habitable and productive as in the garden, which is why Adam is going to become a gardener who's going to work and keep. He's going to guard and protect. He's going to purify it. He's going to work it. He's going to extend it, and they're going to be fruitful and multiply. And listen, if they fulfill their God-given purpose, guess what happens? The borders of the garden begin to expand as the population begins to boom, and little image bearers grow into big image bearers and create other little image bearers, and they just keep extending and extending and extending and extending until the whole world looks like Eden and is in submission to the authority of God. That's the plan. What does this look like for us? Well, the implication is that we are culture makers. And the issue is not whether human beings will develop culture. The only issue is what kind of culture. Will the culture that you create be a godly culture in your home, in your place of work, in your community? Or will it be ungodly? Will it be motivated by God's love or will it be motivated by self-love? You see, this ultimately is a kingdom-building issue. And it begs the question that will be contrasted throughout the rest of this book and the rest of the Bible. There are two kingdoms. There are two cities. And you can be a part of building one or you can be a part of building the other, but there is no neutrality. 
Are you building your kingdom or are you building God's kingdom? Are you engaged in, in the new society that God is creating in the life of the church that's infused with the spirit of God that is seeking to abide by God's rule and reign? Or are you attempting to reject God's rule in your life, to live outside of the bounds and framework that he's given to you to thrive? Are you attempting to advance God's glory or your glory? Are you submitting to his rule and living in sweet, intimate fellowship with him and thereby extending his rule across the globe? Or are you rejecting his rule and refusing relationship and fellowship with him that is ultimately keeping you outside his kingdom and currently living in the domain of darkness? I want to be clear, we are not primarily advancing a physical kingdom. Sin has certainly changed the way this is being fleshed out. The, the garden is not happening by us. We're not making this world like the garden anymore, but we are doing one thing. We are advancing the glory of God as we seek to help others be conformed into the image of Christ. You see, the, the, the mission is now primarily, primarily spiritual. There's physical aspects where everywhere we go, we want to make it better to the glory of God. But don't miss this. The primary mission is now spiritual. God is going to bring about a physical kingdom when he returns. But right now, the kingdom is advancing spiritually. And here's what we need to see finally is that God delivers our humanity. Genesis is in many ways a tragic story. We know this. In fact, you don't get very far into the book before tragedy strikes, and, and I can't help but think of Genesis chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. Um, right before the flood, here's what God says about the, the world. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. It's not what God wanted. He wanted to fill the world with His glory with people who love him and love one another. And instead, it's filled very quickly with violence. Sin rules the day. Dominion, because of the fall, because of sin, is made very difficult. And in the world that we live in, man's, man's sin, not God's glory, seems to advance to every corner of the globe, doesn't it? But you see, throughout the book of Genesis, God then begins to set out to restore man's dominion in redemptive history beginning with a, a promise in Genesis 3.15 that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. God's going to make a, a covenant with Abraham and includes the promise of kings and the possibility of restoring dominion in the land of Canaan. But Israel and her kings do not exercise proper dominion. They fail to live in obedience to God and thus they lose the land. The promise in the Old Testament is given of one who would come to rule righteously and establish a kingdom of peace. And those promises are fulfilled, as we know, this side of the cross in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself comes to this earth from heaven, and he exercises dominion by casting out demons, by restoring order in creation through healing people, and by exercising power over creation, by calming the seas and multiplying food. Hebrews 2 presents Christ as the man who fulfills the original role of dominion given to human beings, the one who makes possible for humans to share in that dominion, restoring them to him. You see, our humanity, we know this is damaged by sin, but though it is damaged by sin, it still, it still remains and it needs to be delivered, rescued, redeemed, and restored through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is a renewal of the divine image brought about by the work of Jesus Christ. The New Testament speaks of this and emphasizes the renewal in terms of our, our relationship to God, a restored relationship to God. Look at these scripture verses. Ephesians 2 verse 24 says this, we're going to put on the new self. Look at this language, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.10 says something similar. We have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, look at this, after the image of its creator. You see, God has planned a new creation church, a new heavens and a new earth. 
And unlike the first creation where he first made the place and afterwards the people to live there, in the new creation he first is making the people and afterwards the place where they will live. The new creation begins in the midst of the old. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was the first man of the new creation. And anyone who is joined to Christ by faith is new creation. It is the way God is birthing into this new birth, into this new life, into this new reality, a new humanity. We will one day form a new society on a fully renewed planet and cosmos. This happens first, though, church, in the inner person and later at the resurrection in the outer person. And if you worship Jesus, if you have turned to him in faith, if you have bowed the knee to him as your king and creator, if you have confessed your sin and need for him, listen, you will be renewed in the image of God and you can now fulfill your created purpose. Christ becomes your identity and Christ becomes your activity. Paul, in in Colossians 1, verse 6, he picks up on this language of being fruitful and multiply that we see in the first creation mandate. And listen, see if you can spot it. It says, which has come to you, he's talking about the gospel, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Can, Can you hear there the echoes, the reverberations of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is what Jesus wants the church to do, to multiply, to reproduce, and that only happens when we gaze upon the gospel and we become more like Christ. Our identity is even further rooted in him, and then our activity is is further driven by a love for him and a longing for the world to know him. We are a people who are called to live out the gospel, to see the gospel bearing fruit and growing wherever God has planted us. God is creating right now a new humanity in Christ through the church by the power of his word and spirit. The creation mandate this side of the cross has been replaced by a new creation mandate. Jesus said it like this, go therefore unto all the world and make disciples. God's kingdom will come physically when he returns and he will bring it about, but it is advancing right now spiritually as we are faithful to be fruitful and multiply by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and seeing the new birth of all who will live eternally with him. Our task in one sense is different, but we may argue that because of the fall, it is more important and more urgent Our call, church, is to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied. Listen, all to the glory of God, so that the glory of God might cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Live out your identity. Our calling as those in the image and likeness of God is to make the invisible character, presence, reign, and authority of God visible in our lives. May we proclaim him and praise him until the day he calls us home or the day he returns in glory.